Okay, so today's lecture is about uh, the history of South African capitalism. It's uh, based on a, an essay written by myself and Vishnu Padayachi, which will be appearing in two special issues of the South African Journal Transformation, which will appear in May to 2013. I have a, a complete and finished version of this, and I'll probably circulate it uh, so you can have that as a, a background, uh, a way of uh, following up some of the issues raised there. Charles Feinstein has an economic history of South Africa, which was written in, published in 2005. It's really an excellent text, quite unusually good. And so we're lucky to have it as a main point of reference. And in the course of the lecture, I will be engaging with his view of how we should look at the faltering performance of the South African economy in the 20th century and beyond. The title of the essay with Vishnu is the history of South African capitalism in national and global perspective. And we've worked for a number of years at trying to develop a, a method, a historiography, that is able to give equal weight to global and national narratives. But we also have uh, an essay in the political economy of Africa which I referred to before, and which was published, edited by Vishnu Padayachi in 2010. And that essay is called South Africa in Africa, which is to some extent an antidote to the analysis that we present here, in which there is a, a correspondence to some extent with global developments and South African developments, and also perhaps in recent years, some degree of contradiction or divergence. And so to national and global perspectives, I believe we should add regional perspectives. And this is particularly the case in, in South Africa, which has historically often considered itself to be a kind of place of enlightenment in the dark continent connected to other places of enlightenment, like Europe and North America or Australia. In other words, the question of whether South Africa is in Africa or not is an issue that uh, uh, finds contemporary political resonance. The headline of the narrative that I will present is that South Africa can only develop as part of an African economic growth that is already uh, manifestly uh, occurring, and that uh, the ANC's policy, which, which combines an, an aggressive nationalism and to some extent alienation from the rest of Africa, and especially migrants from the rest of Africa to South Africa, combines this nationalism with a passive acceptance of the neoliberal global order. Uh, which is, I think, riddled with contradictions that can only be resolved when South Africans become 
talk about Fukui in a more positive way. Okay, the periodization is the same uh, as I've already outlined. We conceive of the modern period as being dominated by something we call national capitalism, which I will recapitulate, which uh, originated in the 1860s in a series of revolutions uh, combining traditional landlords and their forces on the one hand and industrial capitalists on the other. And that this, uh, 1860s and 70s, this led to a period of the first period of financial globalization uh, from the 1880s to the First World War. And this is the period in which uh, South Africa took on its distinctive character. And this period of financial globalization was followed by a period of war, depression, and and more introspective approaches to economy, which was mirrored also in South Africa. And it was followed by what Eric Holzbaum called capitalism's golden age after the war until the end of the 70s, which was governed by significant investments in public services, developmental states, as I've mentioned before, that were committed to raising the purchasing power of the mass of their people. And South Africa participated in this global boom, but not as fully as some other places, for reasons which I will explore. Uh, and towards the end of it, began a process of unraveling that led to the political denouement that we know at the end of the 1980s. And so the final period is, is 1979 to 2008, which we we call um, the period of neoliberalism and financial globalization mark two, leading to a, an unresolved global crisis that we're in today. We have to start from the premise that South Africa is and was a poor, dry country with not many people in it. Uh, there were some hunter-gatherers for millennia, but the population of uh, South Africa uh, has largely been made up of migration from the rest of Africa and from Europe in the last millennium, and in the second case, uh, the last few centuries. Out of this process of migration, uh, four great peoples uh, arose, the first of them being the legacy of Dutch settlement in the Cape, who we speak of as Afrikaans or Africana today. During and after the Napoleonic Wars, at the, around 1800, the British effectively pushed the Afrikaners out of the Cape and pushed them into their great migration, seeking another homeland, if you like, which brought them up against other African peoples and led eventually to the establishment of the two African republics in the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. The Zulus are uh, still the largest single ethnic group 
uh, almost a quarter of the South African population. And as you all know, this uh, consolidation of Mongolian-speaking people in the neighborhood of the British colony of Natal took place in, in the 1820s and afterwards, largely as a result of the efforts of Shaka. This was not cannot be conceived of as an endogenous political formation because it was obviously affected by uh, the movements of British and Afrikaner invaders, if you like. And, uh, but it did lead to the formation of this people. You can read Walter Rodney's account, if you like, of the rise and uh, fall of the uh, Zulu nation. And in the course of the 19th century, a fourth people emerged as a result of British uh, intrusions, if you like, which came to be known as Khosa. So these peoples today, roughly speaking, their descendants uh, account for about two-thirds of the population of South Africa. South Africa was a land of colonial settlements in the 19th century, as well as before. But unlike Australia and Canada, it did not develop a staple export. The Australians developed wool and Canadians had timber, but South Africa had nothing of this sort to sell to the world. Uh, so it remained a, a rather impoverished place. I mean, for example, the English inhabitants of Natal around Durban lobbied the, the British Foreign Minister, Lord Palmerston, at one stage to uh, make them a colony and try to persuade him by arguing that if he didn't, the Americans would come and take the place over. And Palmerston said, well, if the Americans have discovered a superior economic potential in Natal, they're welcome to it. But the fundamental British attitude was that this place was a dead loss. We're always getting pushed by minority settler regimes into assuming political and military responsibilities without any economic benefit. I mean, South Africa was a pretty miserable place uh, until, of course, the discovery of diamonds at Kimberley in the 60s and 70s and subsequently of gold in the Rand. And this transformed everything. This is the period then that the South Africa became a buoyant uh, hub in the, the booming, uh, globalizing economy of the late 19th century. It became a major source of financial investment, especially from Britain. There is a, a quite a famous uh, a historian, political theorist, J.A. Hobson, who I've written up there, who wrote a famous book called Imperialism, which has some qualities that make it uh, comparable to Lenin's work on the same topic. And he has some amazing passages here about what he found in Johannesburg. He felt that he found in Johannesburg in the 1890s a capitalist class more dynamic, robust, and 
extraordinary than any that he had found in China, Buenos Aires, Manchester, or anywhere similar. We quote something, I mean, it's really hype for the South African model, if you like. Big mining houses were established. Cecil Rhodes managed to put together the De Beers mining monopoly and houses headed by people like Barney Bernardo flourished at this time. The diamond mines and the gold, however, required a different business model. The gold was located much further down and required deep mining that posed uh, engineering problems and also meant that investment was much longer term. I mean, the, the diamond mines paid off extraordinarily. I mean, they were essentially floated by uh, an inward investment of 20 billion pounds at the beginning of the 1880s. And the returns over the next two decades were in excess of 350 billion. South Africa very quickly, although it benefited from inward investment at the first, it became very quickly its own source of capital. But this uh, capital was geared towards uh, shorter term returns. And the gold mines uh, posed different problems and questions. And it required uh, another influx, not only of capital, but of technology and corporate, uh, external corporate finance and organization from the United States. I mean, the main uh, source of the ability to sustain uh, deep mining uh, came from the United States and brought a, a remarkable cohort of American engineers who also became leading CEOs of the emerging gold mining companies. And these uh, American CEOs were, uh, felt that the return on their investment could not be guaranteed by the Transvaal Republic, the Afrikaner Republic, where the, the mines were located. And so they became major boosters for and supporters of British attempts to defeat the Afrikaner Republics in two wars, the so-called Boer Wars, uh, all of which left uh, a very uh, strong impression, as, you, as it might, on the Afrikaans' population, who were effectively, but only narrowly, defeated by the British. And the British uh, in these wars, one of the things that's always interested me is that the British have been very effective in their propaganda, in representing themselves as fair and just cricket players, and their uh, role in, in developing the dirty tricks warfare that essentially uh, dominated the 20th century has been obscured. But in fact, in seeking to fight off Indian, Irish and South African independence movements, the British invented uh, a whole bunch of dirty tricks ranging from hit squads, concentration camps, disinformation campaigns. I was reading a, a biography of a, an Irish nationalist and at one point there is a civil service note attached to a letter from Smots, the South African Prime Minister, 
who offers some support based on the experience of the Boer Wars uh, for and uh, offers some advice on, on how the Irish rebellion should be treated and contained and, de and defeated. And this civil servant had, has written on this uh, letter, who does Smuts think he is? We've been putting down revolutions in India for 50 years. This sense of a beleaguered, actually liberal English government at the turn of 1900, fighting off insurrection, and so in some very unlikely places eventually, like Canada. I mean, you think of the Canadians as, you know, wouldn't say boo to a goose or whatever, but in the 1920s and 30s, they were fighting for their own form of independence from the British Empire and, and used to meet with the South Africans and the Indians and the, and the Irish at British uh, imperial conferences to try and plot against them. So eventually, I mean, the British, with the main stimulus of the mining, gold mining companies, did put down the Afrikaners. And this led, as you know, to the Union in, 20, in 1910, which was essentially a political compromise between the two main white groups. Now, before this happened, I mean, I've already spoken at length about Arthur Lewis's vision of this period as a period in which two uh, racially differentiated migration streams one from Europe and one from Asia, Chinese and Indians, were broadly speaking kept separate, especially since their rate of remuneration was nine times higher for the whites than for the coolies. And that wherever the coolies uh, settled, they drove the local wage labor rates and prices down to their level, which was about a shilling a day. Well, the British capital in agriculture in Natal initiated the significant migration of Indians in the period from the 1860s onwards into the sugarcane plantations uh, around Durban. And later, I mean, around 1900 or thereabouts, the mining companies brought in Chinese labor in significant numbers, but this influx was defeated by the white working class and ended fairly quickly. But Natal, where Indians and poor whites coexisted for several decades, became the kind of incubator for segregationist politics, essentially securing the privileges of whites from Asian competition there. And it was not at that time a major issue what the Zulus or other African peoples were doing. I mean, they more or less stayed out of uh, involvement in, in British capitalism. But this Natal experience, in which various forms of legislation developed, uh, giving discriminatory property, voting, and commercial rights to whites and nations, became a kind of model or template for the development of segregationist policies uh, after the Africans began seriously to enter the urban labor force, principally mining, around the time of the Union. 
The period is discussed at uh, some great length, but as I mentioned in an earlier lecture, if Lewis is right that the separation of these the migration streams played a major part in dividing the world into rich manufacturing exporters and poor uh, agricultural exporters, the two places where these streams in one form or another mixed up with uh, extreme racism occurred were the United States and South Africa, which uh, to some extent accounts for these two countries' extreme versions of racism in the 20th century. It's a, an argument that has to be developed, obviously. So, the war disrupted world trade and uh, continued to do so afterwards. And in the period of the 1920s and onwards, uh, South Africa, like many other places around the world, adopted a model of a kind of Latin American model of import substituting industrialization. And they also turned towards greater state investment and control in uh, strategic sectors of the economy. This was the period also when the most significant indigenous uh, business phenomenon uh, grew to prominence, which was the Anglo-American company founded by Ernest Oppenheimer. Ernest Oppenheimer came, was a German Jew who, who, who came to, to South Africa before the war. Um, he formed the Anglo-American in 1917 and at all stages kept very close relations with the dominant political figures of the day. He became a member of parliament himself for Kimberley. He had very close relations with Smuts. But the, the interwar period uh, saw a series of governments alternating between Smuts' leadership and the leadership of the Afrikaner Herzog. Herzog's uh, regime was launched in something called the Pact Government of 1924, which was an alliance of poor rural Afrikaners and white working class of both the uh, main white tribes. I mean, its principal policy was to ensure uh, the deepening and persistence of the color bar in employment. That I mean, the mining companies uh, in the early part of the 20th century often sought to make a shift from cheap black labor towards something which was more rewarding for the uh, local African labor force. I mean, the basic problem was that the wage-labor prices were very low and labor supply was scarce. So, and this scarcity of labor supply should have led to a rise in wage levels of the black workers, but this was resisted by the white working class quite effectively, and especially after they took control of government in 1924. The interwar period was also one marked, as you know, by tremendous economic fluctuations, the stock market boom of the 20s, the depression that followed its collapse, and South Africa was a major player in, in this period because, of course, it, it supplied 
the majority of the gold that kept up gold-based international trade. And this gold-based international trade was threatened when the British went off the gold standard in 1931 and then developed a major tug of war between the British and the Americans over... I mean, the British policy was essentially to go off gold and, and try and shift towards imperial time zone of the British Empire as the main focus of the world economy, um, driven from, but from London. And the Americans wanted to keep uh, gold up. So there was a whole series of quite tense political struggles in the 30s over whether uh, South Africa would go off gold or not. And generally speaking, Smuts and his largely British supporters favored, uh, brought in experts like Keynes and, and other uh, English uh, uh, economists and the, the Afrikaners brought in Americans and uh, Irish and German uh, economists who would argue against leaving the gold standard and so on and so on. It's a very it's a fascinating period and it's one uh, that reveals quite clearly the contesting interest groups that uh, sought to control South African capitalism in this period. So, after the war, as you know, and rather against expectations, the nationalists, the Afrikaner nationalists, won control of the government and instituted apartheid. And it's, it's very interesting that that the kind of peak of apartheid, which was about 1948 when they were elected, till 1973, which was the timing of the energy crisis and the beginning of the World Depression, that in this period, South Africa enjoyed quite serious growth rates, but not as high as in some other places. We know, of course, that South Africa was isolated in the world uh, as a result of general opposition to its apartheid policies, but we shouldn't imagine that South Africa was in some sense a separate entity from the world in this period. For example, Vishnu and I are looking into IMF and World Bank loans in the 50s and 60s found that South Africa actually benefited from these. Uh, they were the second highest recipient in Africa after Mobutu's uh, Zaire of uh, loans from this sort of very large financial inputs. Sorry, I should go back to some of the developments of the 1920s, which included the formation of uh, state corporations, especially Iscor, the uh, steel company, and Escom, the uh, energy company. They also saw the emergence of Sanlam, the major financial conglomerate of the Afrikaners, and it also saw the emergence of the National Industrial Corporation, which was a government body concerned with administering investment uh, in the domestic economy. In other words, this was a significant turn towards national or even state capitalism, and this uh, was continued after the Second World War by the nationalist government, which engaged in a quite aggressive and reasonably successful program of industrialization. But 
The fundamental fact is that South African industry was always supported by, by gold profits. I mean, this, well, the main uh, feature of the South African economy until the 1970s was uh, sheltered by gold from some of the fluctuations in world markets. But by the end of the 60s, the gold began to run out. And most of this period of import substituting industrialization was only made possible by transfers from gold profits into manufacturing. The manufacturing never became self-sustaining in the South African economy. And the South African economy, as Feinstein points out, was permanently faced with the threat of excessive imports. The problem was that the manufacturing, in order to get going, had to import materials and, and machinery and all kinds of things. And this had to be paid for by gold profits. I mean, the reason why substituting industrialization didn't work in South Africa is that the population is small compared with, even today, 50 million is small compared with the other BRICs and even with places like Turkey or Nigeria or, or Bangladesh or wherever. And the fundamental premise of import substituting industrialization is that the home market will sustain demand for manufacturers. And in South Africa, the population was small and three quarters of the people had no money to spend. So there was never any chance that the home market could develop in South Africa alone uh, to sustain uh, industrialization. And this became even more apparent when the gold ran out, uh, as it did, uh, more or less, by the end of the 60s. And this was the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, if you remember, was the period when uh, the American losing war in Vietnam created enormous financial instability, as a result of which the uh, Americans, uh, Nixon took American, the American dollar off gold. The result was a temporary bonanza for South Africa because the gold price increased eight times. And having all the, so that meant that the, the, the kind of day of reckoning, if you like, was artificially delayed by uh, this sudden boost to the price of gold, which compensated for the reduced production of it. And that had some effect, but by the beginning of the 80s, the game was clearly up, because then the gold price fell, South Africa's industries had not uh, become self-sustaining, the gold had almost run out, and of course, uh, in the meantime, there was large-scale unrest in the townships. The urban black wage labor force was pushing successfully through strikes and agitation for higher wages. The whole economic structure of South African capitalism was irreversibly damaged, and quite obviously so by the early to mid-80s. And of course, in this situation, the Nags decided they'd better throw in the towel and make the best of it. I mean, what has happened since? I mean, what, what we argue is that there have been two periods 
in which South African governments have aimed at essentially national capitalism. One of them being the, the NAS from 48 onwards, in which the benefits of national capitalism were conceived of as being restricted to, to the wise. And according to Feinstein, it wasn't possible for South African national capitalism to take off when such a small proportion of the population received the benefits. That, I mean, Feinstein's model, I mean, Feinstein asked this question. He says, South Africa was a mining enclave. It was an imperial mining enclave. A mining enclave is the opposite of national capitalism. It's a system of production financed and dependent on external markets. So he claims that South, Af South African society and various governments have sought at various times in the 20th century, and it's including now, to try to revive South African capitalism in the interest of all the citizens, or at least a larger number of them. Now, like and Becky, Molesi and Becky, in my previous lecture, Feinstein believes that that in order to prosper, home demand has to be developed. The home market has to be developed, and there has to be manufacturing to supply this home market. But at the same time, the purchasing power sustaining this market depends on the rising productivity of labor, which is fed both by investment in machinery and by the education of the labor force. So that without a commitment to raising the productivity of labor through education and through investment, aimed at initially the home market and then perhaps for export, the transition to a modern economy is impossible. So, and, and this impossibility was underlined in the previous experiments by the fact that the vast majority of the black population were not part of the deal. So that however much uh, the Afrikaners kind of cottoned onto the model and applied it to themselves, they always ran up against the limitations of a home market divided by the absence of purchasing power and of education and of motivation and skills for the majority of the African population. Okay, so how does the ANC's attempt to develop uh, a national uh, uh, capitalist model compare with that? Well, if you look at the World Economic Forum, this is something coming out of Davos, Davos. I think in my email to the group I, uh, some time ago, I shared some of the statistics from this. They identify 12 factors that they believe contribute to successful economies and they rank the world's economy from 1 to 142 and Switzerland comes number one, surprisingly, given that it originates from Switzerland. South Africa comes at 50, but this isn't very much unlike the other BRICs, which Russia and, uh, and Brazil and India and China also are located in that rough uh, stratum. But the, the, the qualities that Davos thinks 
are necessary for the development of an effective economy are very close to those identified by both Mbeki and uh, uh, Feinstein. South Africa comes out as uh, a first world financial economy, ranking number three, I think, in, in corporate structures, number five in financial institutions, or, and 138 in health, and uh, something similar in life expectancy, and pretty far down in terms of labor productivity. So what you have is, in these figures, you can just look at them and you can see a first world corporate financial sector uh, surrounded by the misery of a third world malfunctioning education, health, and labor system. So the question that we obviously have to ask I mean, why did the transition to black majority rule uh, lead to this uh, consequence? And uh, Vishnu and I identified three areas to look at. I mean, one of them is the, the change in the nature of corporate organization, and in particular, the shift from mining to finance. Uh, the second is black uh, economic empowerment and as often happens when I reach this stage in the lecture, the third uh, escapes me, oh, it'll come, don't worry. Uh, what is the third, for God's sake? Uh, oh well, never mind. Um, so, I mean, the first uh, uh, section depends on an analysis that was uh, produced by Ben Fine and Rostam G. And this was the argument that in the 1980s, the South African economy was dominated by what it calls the mining and energy complex. That is to say that the Anglo-dominated uh, mining uh, system evolved to a point which included some large energy companies and was uh, based on various deals that led, for example, to the extremely cheap electricity supply to uh, aluminium smelter that the uh, ANC approved uh, soon after it came to power. So uh, this, this is basically saying that the kind of statist organizations that emerged in the interwar period, like ESCOM and ISCOR, were somehow, you know, were melded into a state mining and financial alliance that was dominated by Anglo, but which also included some of the major public companies. And they called this the mining energy complex. So the first question we have to ask is, in the almost two decades since the ANC came to power, has the structure of uh, the dominant structure of South African capital changed? And it seems uh, reasonable to suggest that, that the mind, oh, I know what the third one was, capital flight. Okay, so the three are the changing uh, corporate structures, BEE and capital flight. So, one argument is that the South African economy is now driven by services and especially finance. 
uh, and that the mining companies have in fact been transformed and of course as you know many of them have simply relocated abroad. The second element like uh, essentially affirmative action uh, the ANC started very softly by uh, suggesting that firms might want voluntarily to recruit more black employees. Uh, when this didn't work very well, they introduced some regulations to uh, people who had to conform to. But there is still a lot of argument out there over how effective the ANC's uh, policies have been in this respect. And this is quite a part, of course, from the process of enriching a few ANC supporters through this method. But it was also a concern to, to increase rates of equity ownership amongst the black population. So that when the ANC came to power, black equity participation in the JSE was around 1%. And by the end of the 90s, it had increased to 10%. Uh, but then by 2004, it was down to 4%. And one of the problems with uh, essentially handing over lumps of cash to Africans uh, is that there is no, uh, no endogenous source. I mean, the people are not buying their participation through their own cash, they have to be given it, which puts the, mer the merchant banks into the driving seat. They, in effect, uh, broker deals that transfer some equity to some uh, person, and then this person very often just sells the, 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 the shares immediately back to the bank uh, for some agreed uh, cut, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a very peculiar scene, but probably more important than any of this is the fact that whereas in, in the formation of modern South African capitalism there was significant input of capital. For example, the British in the period after 1900 spent 25% of their infrastructure investment in the whole of the British Empire in South Africa. Okay, so I mean, they really did, I mean, they fought the Boer War essentially to clear the ground to put massive investment into infrastructure. There was also massive inward investment into gold mining, initially diamonds, but later it was not necessary. And now in this period, the money is leaving. It's leaving uh, dramatically. I haven't got any uh, articles, but there are many of them around to estimate the scope of capital flight from South Africa. So at one level, the capital supply is being diminished by being located somewhere else, but there is still a significant capital in South Africa, but the people who have it, which is mostly the financial sector, don't spend it. So basically, South African capital has either been expatriated or is sitting in savings accounts as cash. This means that there is almost no lending for ongoing industrial investment or any other kind of investment going on in South Africa. So capital has left and the parts that have remained are essentially passive and just sitting there waiting to see what happens next. In the meantime, 
uh, uh, black economic empowerment may well have blurred the lines of racial division to some extent, but they haven't generated any kind of endogenous economic growth that would provide greater and more remunerated employment to the vast majority of Africans. So this is a, a very depressing scenario, and it's made even more depressing by the fact that from 1996, the South African government adopted a highly contradictory policy of making the country's economy open to uh, global markets uh, with very little restriction uh, or modification. And at the same time, they based their moral authority on hoping that South African citizens of all races would sign up for a nationalist agenda which actually pitted them against the other Africans who had supported the ANC in their struggle against apartheid. This has led to a situation, essentially, where uh, the government's uh, sole claim for legitimacy is that it is somehow protecting South Africans of all colours against the, uh, the tide of uh, African immigration or whatever. And it's this fundamental policy which is then reflected in xenophobic outbreaks and so on. And according to Vishnu and myself, this is a strong, a very counterproductive economic policy because, I mean, Africa is the market that is expanding fastest in the world. The Asian manufacturers know this already. They recognize, you know, in, by 2050, Africa will have 25% of the world's population. So, I mean, you know, the, the fact is that in a, in a, in a world of, of increasingly stagnant populations, not least in the West, but also increasingly in the Asian capitalist societies like India and China. Population is leveling off and the only place in the world where it's still booming is Africa. And that's why the Asians have recognized for more than a decade that they have to invest here. Now, you know, South Africa is sitting in this poor, dry place with no water I mean, again, like in the 1970s, a small precious metals boom is kind of holding their nose just above water, uh, but it's not systematic and it isn't long-term. I mean, you can't build this economy on platinum forever. So, I mean, there has to be some fundamental solution and the obvious one is for South Africa to, to, to develop its capital and the expertise and the rest of it in conjunction with the rest of Africa in the world's largest and fastest growing market. But they can't do that because they pursued hostile policies towards their African neighbors and they have uh, devoted a large amount of propaganda to persuading their own citizens that the main enemy lies outside and not within. I mean, this obviously raises a lot of questions and we don't answer them in the paper because the paper is just a kind of background document that we hope allows people to, to trace some of the connections and divergences between what happened in this country and what happened in the world more generally. But certainly at this stage, facing the extended failure to make the transition from a mining enclave to a modern economy, 
uh, South Africans have to face up to their relationship with the world, either through regional associations in, or in some other way. And that, as far as we're concerned, is the problem facing South African capitalism today. Thank you.